Good morning, Cypress Bible. Welcome to worship today. Let me invite you to stand together. Let's lift our voice and sing to the one and only Jesus. Lift us up. For a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. With eloquence I could display, and every language speak a thousand words could never say the praise I have for thee
same God who's never late is working all things out, working all things out. Oh, yes, I will lift you high in the lowest valley. Yes, I will bless your name. Yes, I will sing for joy when my heart is heavy all my days. Oh, yes, I will. We will sing your praise. Sing it out, I count on one thing. I count on one thing. The same God who never fails will not fail me now. You won't fail me now in the waiting. The same God who's never late is working all things out. You're working all things out. Oh, yes, I will lift you high in the lowest valley. Yes, I will bless your name. Yes, I will sing for joy when my heart is heavy all my days. Oh, yes, I will for seated as we continue. What's up, church fam? Jonathan Chang here. Ashley Ebert here. And we just wanted to let you know that we've been praying together as a church for this past month, um, really for God's direction and how we will be effective for the gospel. Uh, and not just that, but also for the direction that we will go uh, in as a church. Mm -hmm. So we want to invite you here Wednesday, November 17th at 7 p.m. And we're just going to gather together as a church family to celebrate and really highlight the amazing things that God has done, not only over the course of Together We Pray, but what he's going to do moving forward. Um, and this is not just... Um you know, just for certain groups of people, this is for the whole church family. So all the grow groups, the student ministry will be here, men, women, kids, everybody is invited to just come together and just stand in awe of what the Lord is doing in this church body. Yeah, and we really want to make sure we all remember that this isn't just a time to pray in this concentrated time. We, as followers of Jesus, as a church family at Cypress Bible Church, we want to be committed to prayer, understanding that prayer is what really drives the work of the ministry. Prayer is what allows us to see how the Spirit moves in order for us, as I said earlier, to be effective in this world. And so on November 17th, 7 p.m., we look forward to worshiping with you all here then. Have an awesome day. Church, 
Today begins week six of Together We Pray. And as Jonathan and Ashley were just talking about, all of uh, this six weeks of intentional focused prayer culminates with all of us gathered together as a church family right here in this room on November 17th, which is this Wednesday night, seven o'clock. We are calling this Together We Celebrate. And uh, our desire, simply put, is that every single person who can be here Uh, will be here and that we can all gather together as a church family and uh, celebrate what God is doing in our midst. So to help make that possible, we want you to let let, let you know that uh, child care for ages birth through kindergarten is available, uh, but we need you to sign up for uh, for that today if you're interested in uh, needing child care. You can do that by stopping by the Together We Pray table, which is in the commons, and it's just to your right as you go out uh, these double doors in the back. Well, our focus for week six of Together We Pray is this. We pray that we will boldly share Jesus with others. And our selected verse, which is meant to inform and catalyze our prayer, comes from Acts 4.12, where Luke records for us these words spoken by Peter. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And Peter is, of course, in that verse, talking about the name of Jesus. And so with that verse in mind, uh, I'd like us to to pray together this morning. And uh, I invite you to pray these words in your heart as I pray these words out loud on behalf of all of us. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would fill us with your spirit. Enable us to boldly declare that there is salvation in no one else but Jesus. Through our church, lift high the name of Jesus for all to hear. Your name is above all names. Holy God, only you can save. Keep us committed to sharing your message and your work in our lives. Help us to share the truth of your salvation. Give us courage to boldly speak the name of Jesus. All for your glory, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Nathan. So honored to be here with you again today. And I love this prayer emphasis that we have been a part of. The six weeks of really intentionally seeking the Lord that really culminates this Wednesday night. So please make plans to come and be here and worship with us the time of prayer and singing together and seeking the Lord. But one of the last prayer points that we have been focusing on and what Pastor Nathan just shared with us was about proclaiming the name of Jesus. And so this morning, we want to teach you a new song. And at the beginning, we're going to sing this song over you, but we want you to, and as soon as you pick up on it, to jump in with us, to sing this together. This is a participation, but I think it's going to be an incredible um, testimonial song that all of us can relate to. So this song we're going to share with you this morning is called My Jesus. Are you past the point of weary? Is your burden weighing heavy? Is it all too much to carry? Let me tell you about my Jesus. Do you feel that empty feeling? Cause shame's done all it's stealing. And you're desperate for some healing. Let me tell you about my Jesus. He makes a way where there ain't no way. Rises up from an empty grave. Ain't no sinner that he can't save. Let me tell you about my Jesus. His love is strong and his grace is free. The good news is I know that he for you what he's done for me let me tell you about my jesus and let my jesus change your life hallelujah 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 amen amen who can wipe away the tears from broken dreams and wasted years and tell the past to disappear let me tell you about my Jesus all the wrong turns that you would go and undo if you could who can work it all for your good let me tell you about my Jesus 
you up a little bit this morning. I don't know if you're quite ready for that one right there, but man, I tell you what, my Jesus can change your life. He is not just my Jesus. He's all of our Jesus. Amen. Anybody who believes in the name of the Lord shall be saved. I'm thankful also this morning that we have an incredible group of volunteers up here leading in worship, and we have all generations up here, y'all. We've got grandparents, we've got moms and dads, and we even have kids And I just love to see that expression of worship as the generations teach each other. And it says here in Psalm 145, the Lord is great and is highly praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation will declare your works to the next and will proclaim your mighty acts. And as a church body, we have such an incredible opportunity to invest and pour this legacy of faith that we have lived as adults, as parents and grandparents, into the next generation and telling them about the wonderful works, the glorious splendor of the he has done for us. And so today as we worship, oh, and you have, if you have somebody beside you, just worship in freedom and let them see how much Jesus has changed your life. And when the world sees how much Jesus has changed our life, there is no telling what could happen, what change could happen as people realize that God is a God full of grace, full of compassion, full of mercy, welcoming you with his loving arms. Let's continue to worship and think on these things, the beautiful and matchless name of Jesus. Now repeat. 
confess, every knee will bow, and they will know that Jesus Christ is Lord, the name above all names, the King, and the one who reigns. And God, also, thank you for Jesus being a friend, for Jesus being someone who sees us and offers us this incredible grace. Lord, we love you. We give the rest of this service to you. It's in the powerful and strong name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I spent uh, about the first decade of my life in upstate New York. And um, it could get hot there in the summers, like almost like 90. It's like winter in Houston. But as a little kid playing in the yard with my friend, got uh, very thirsty in the, in the hot weather, the summer. And uh, there was a hose there on the ground in my friend's yard, and I grabbed that hose, it had one of those little trigger nozzles on it, and I stuck that nozzle in my mouth and pulled the trigger, because I was thirsty. And first of all, that water was scalding hot. And secondly, it spurted everywhere, down the back of my throat, through my nose. My nasal passages have never been clearer. Out of that, I got maybe a little bit of water, but I was so distracted with the pain, I was no longer as thirsty as I once was. Now, I thought about that as here we are studying through Ecclesiastes. And for the first five chapters, we went basically verse by verse through this passage. But now we're picking up speed. In fact, I summarized chapter 6 in a few sentences last week. And this morning we're covering chapters 7, 8, and 9. And next week, by God's grace, we're going to finish this book with chapters 10, 11, and 12. And so there's more coming out of the biblical hose than you can possibly take in. And I want to make sure you don't miss out. And so we're going to focus on a central truth in each of these chapters this morning. The background of this book is that I believe written by King Solomon with all his riches and power was able to go down every kind of road in life looking for significance, looking for meaning for life on this planet, life under the sun. And uh, he comes up empty in every way and has much to teach us as the people of God. And as we go through these chapters this morning, we're not going to deal with every line here. We're not going to deal with every truth that's listed, Uh, but I want to make sure that uh, you get one major lesson for each of these three chapters this morning, and we point to Jesus, and we see how this speaks to really what I would call the mystery of life. There's some mysteries going on here, and some of the the mysteries are, are explained with questions like this, why are things the way they are? You ever ask that? Why doesn't life make sense all the time? It's a mystery. Why don't the good times last? And why do the bad times show up? And what about all those bad people? How can I live with the frustration that I feel with how life can be on this planet? I think those are some mysteries. And we need to have the courage, theological courage, to face questions like that and the ambiguities of life. 
So I want to take you through each of these three chapters this morning. We're going to focus on on one aspect here. And the the first is this, chapter 7. Life is full of extremes, so trust God in both. Verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. Verse 2. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Verse 5. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. All right, what's going on there? Well, first of all, I want to point out, if you're, you're looking at your text, you can probably see it laid out. Half of this chapter is made up of Proverbs, proverbial sayings. And again, Proverbs are not promises. Don't read them that way. They are pithy statements that condense general truths into a few memorable words. And so, verse 1, how is a good reputation better than fine perfume? Well, for one thing, it lasts longer. You earn a good name by inner character, but a fragrance is external, and it fades away over time. Uh, that, That fragrance will mask odors for a while, but eventually the stink will overwhelm it. Your reputation flows from an internal reality that can't be hidden. Well, so how is your dying day better than the day you were born? Well, because when you're dying, you... You face the ultimate questions of life. And when you're born, you're not really aware of much at all. Uh, On your deathbed, you can take comfort from what you believe, from what you founded your life in. You can take stock of your life on your deathbed. In the delivery room, you don't realize that uh, you learn quick, but you don't realize quite yet that when you cry, everybody wants to help you. And when you cry, things are going to happen. They're going to attend to your need. And verse 2, why is it better to go to a funeral than to a party? Well, because it reminds you, Solomon says, of your own mortality. It, it, it causes you to evaluate your life and how you're living that life. One situation has more to teach you than the other situation. Now, if you party all the time, you will not grow. Where verse 5, nobody likes to be criticized, corrected, but being rebuked, corrected by somebody who's wise, is far better than being entertained. Why? Well, a foolish song won't teach you much of anything of value. But if you listen to wise correction, you will grow. You will benefit. And all of us, wherever we're at in life, we all experience this spectrum of, of both sides here, criticism and diversion, grieving and feasting, birth and death, good days and bad days, and God made both of them. That's verse 14. Why did God make both? Well, the text tells us, so you won't take anything for granted. Not one of us knows absolutely what will happen tomorrow. God keeps us on our toes, so to speak, because we can't find out anything about our immediate future, that's for sure. And and so therefore, we must view all of life through the proper lens. So so trust God in prosperity and in adversity, because there's something to learn and some way to grow through each of those extremes. In fact, although... Every single one of us wants to avoid hard times. Every one of us wants to avoid hard times. We learn far more through the hard times than we do the times of prosperity and ease and happiness. So so let me sum it up with these words. That God uses life's extremes to improve us. That, I believe, is Solomon's point here. It causes us to ask, where is my faith really founded. Yes, when you put your trust in Christ alone, when you, you turn away from all the other ways that you're trying to save and improve and best yourself, and you turn to Jesus as the way and the truth and the life, the only way to the Father, 
you put your trust in him, then you become a new creation. That through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you become a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. But you know, adversity doesn't vanish then, does it? Discipline doesn't disappear. Why? Well, because we have a father who loves us and who wants to shape us into the image of his son. And the extremes of life are one way that God tests and improves and works that out in us. And so the reality is that even though if your trust is in Christ, you're a new creation, you're still going to get frustrated with your spouse. You're going to get frustrated with your boss. You're going to get frustrated with your employees or with your children, with your neighbor, with your church. You will lose a job or you will lose an investment or you will lose a relationship or you will lose your health. But through all of that, the question becomes, will I trust God even now? Even now. Will my faith survive trouble, illness, grief, loss? In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul talks about being under stress so unbearable that it felt like a death sentence. I love what he says, though. He says, this happened so that I would not rely on myself, but on God who raises the dead. On him we have set our hope. That's a wonderful passage. That's what God's doing in the extremes of life. And so in those extremes, where is your hope? That's chapter 7. Chapter 8, life is unfair, so fear God. Verse 10, I have seen wicked people buried with honor. How strange that they were the very ones who frequented the temple and are praised in the very city where they committed their crimes. When a crime is not punished, people feel it's safe to do wrong. But even though a person sins a hundred times and still lives a long time, I know that those who fear God will be better off. And this is not at all that is meaningless in our world. In this life, good people are often treated as though they were wicked. And wicked people are often treated as though they were good. This is so meaningless. Sure, you can identify with some of that. One uh, Hebrew scholar said that there are few things more obnoxious than the sight of wicked men flourishing, except this, that when that wickedness is respected and given the blessing of religion, he said, then it's even more sickening. And that's what's going on here. That's the situation that's being described in verse 10 and following, where you got the villains, the people who are wicked, And they're given a flowery eulogy at the very scene of their crimes. This religious window dressing for these wicked people. So this is the opposite of the kind of funeral that was talked about in the first few verses where you can learn something and it causes you to think about your life and how how it's lived. This is the opposite of that. Here, this is when they Photoshop a devil into a saint. At least with words. I presided over a funeral of a man who made Ebenezer Scrooge look like Santa Claus. This guy gave no affection to his family in any form. He was, to put it bluntly, a boil on the backside of every community meeting that he would go to. He, uh, he had the disposition of an ill-tempered weasel, is the way I would put it. They did not let me do the eulogy. Now you can see why. But from what was said at that funeral... You would think the guy cured cancer. It was just fabrication. It wasn't reality. It was exactly the kind of thing that's talked about here. Verse 11, when uh, the wicked don't get what's coming to them, it encourages others to do wrong as well. And that's so unfair in this life. The evildoers don't get the payback they deserve or we think they deserve. And it just inspires other people to sin. And verse 12, people like that can even live to a ripe old age. The wickedness they do doesn't prevent them from this longevity of life. And this is meaningless. But that's not all. The teacher says, verse 14, the good don't get what's coming to them either. Life's unfair. Even though they are tzaddik, righteous is the Hebrew word, righteous. Even though they are lawful people, righteous before God, 
they, they get treated like criminals. And meanwhile, the real evil doer, doers get treated as if they were righteous, as if they were tzaddik. And he says, this is hebel. That's the word we've had consistently throughout here, the Hebrew word, which means emptiness, meaningless, vapor, mist, the nearest thing to zero. That's what this is. So what do you do about that? Life's unfair. Do you become a vigilante? Do you become bitter? Do you raise your fist at God? No, the teacher comforts himself in this, in saying there is an ultimate judge. Those who fear God will be satisfied in the end. Talks about those who fear God, they're going to be fine. So no matter what happens to you, or no matter what doesn't happen to those you think deserve something different, revere God. Because the reality is, to put it in these sense, that the day of God's justice is coming. It's not fairness that's coming. It's justice. I love 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 that assures the people of God this. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels, he will punish those who don't know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That's 2 Thessalonians 1. That's comfort for those who believe and a warning to those who do not follow the gospel. See, the sin in your life, I've sinned in my life, must be recognized as sin, must be admitted and confessed and cling to Jesus as the only solution for that. On my deathbed, whenever that day is, imagine there'll still be some sin in my life that I need to be dealing with, confessing before the Lord, things that I have said or things that I have thought or things that I have done that displease the Lord. But see, it's, it's not my moral perfection that guarantees me heaven, is it? Otherwise, I'd be in big trouble. It's not my moral perfection. It's Jesus. And when I turn from my sin to him, I stand in his righteousness. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Yeah, so life's unfair. But the day of God's justice is coming. That's chapter 8. Chapter 9. Life is short, so enjoy God's gifts. All right, buckle up. Verse 7, here we go. Seize life. Eat bread with gusto. Drink wine with a robust heart. Oh, yes, God takes pleasure in your pleasure. Dress festively every morning. Don't skimp on colors or scarves. Verse 9, relish life with the spouse you love. Each and every day of your precarious life. Each day is God's gift. It's all you get in exchange for the hard work of staying alive. Make the most of each one. Verse 10. Whatever turns up, grab it and do it. And heartily. This is your last and only chance at it. For there's neither work to do nor thoughts to think in the company of the dead where you're most certainly headed. Sounds like a beer commercial a little bit, doesn't it? But the believer, the one whose faith is in Jesus, must give himself and can give himself or herself to a contented and joyful life. Why? Because the basis of that contentment is God has already approved what you do. It's God has given it to you. The believer is not struggling to be accepted. I'm not struggling to impress God or to prove myself to God. I've been accepted in Jesus, and that's settled. That's true the believer's already accepted. And so what we can do is receive God's contentment as a gift. 1 Timothy 6 calls those who believe to live a life of contentment. That because of Jesus, 1 Timothy 6 says, we can live and be content with the bare essentials of life. And it even lists what those are. Something to eat and something to cover yourself. That, that word for covering refers to clothes and I think also a roof over your head, some form of shelter. And so basically the message of 1 Timothy 6 that, that affirms this is, is that if you've got Jesus and you've got a pair of pants and a roof over your head, that's more than enough to be content. 
Someone said that contentment is knowing that if I'm not satisfied with what I have, I won't be satisfied with what I want either. So when you can get to the place of realizing that what you don't have won't satisfy you even if you get it, then you can learn to be content with what you do have. Can you be content in a one-bedroom apartment eating ramen noodles in the name of Jesus? If not, you won't be content in the five-bedroom, three-bath house eating couscous. If you're not satisfied without a wife, you won't be content with one. If you're not satisfied without children, you won't be content with them. And you might say, well, what's the big deal here? What, what does it matter if I'm always wanting more, if I'm working for the best toys and the bigger profits and the better things? Well, there are dangers that, that not only threaten commit contentment, but they threaten life itself. Because if you want to find significance in your life, if you want to find deep meaning, peace, and contentment, this is the source of it. Embrace what God has given you already. And then on that foundation, live your life to the full. Fill it with all that is of value and reason and worth. I want you to, about, do you live that way? Can, can you read those verses and say, that's, that's the way I live. On the foundation of Jesus, I, I can relish life this way. Do you claim to, to follow Christ Do you claim to be a child of the King of Kings, covered in his righteousness, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, filled with grace, seated in heavenly places, filled with the fullness of God, with all the glorious riches that are yours in Jesus? Then how do you live? And how do people see you live? Is there joy in the journey? Is there peace in the outcomes? Whatever those outcomes might be. Is there contentment no matter what happens? That's how you live when you know that everything comes from the hand of a good God who loves you and has called you according to his purpose. That's chapter 9. Life is short. Enjoy God's gifts. So let me put it in other words for you, each of these chapters, that life is full of extremes. So trust God in good times and bad Can you do that today? Chapter 8. Life is unfair. So respect the God who has set a day to judge the world with justice. Chapter 9. Life is short. So bless God as the source of everything you have. Some of you will know the name John Perkins. He's a Bible teacher, best-selling author, civil rights activist, widely respected Christian leader. Although I don't, uh, it's not really the thing to do to call somebody with an honorary doctorate doctor, I would call John Perkins doctor because he has 16 honorary doctorates. Today, John is 91 years old. My first encounter happened with him when I was in college. He spoke in our chapel, and he shared some of what I'm going to share with you right now. And then 20 years later or so, he spoke at the church I served in Chicago several times. And as a result, Amy and I went with uh, a team of others to his home in uh, Mississippi. And we uh, we spent a week in Mississippi in July which until I moved here was the hottest week I'd ever spent. And we spent that week helping the Christian Community Development Association. Amy went the following year with another team. This is John. He taught us a Bible lesson every morning. He worked alongside of us every day. And he told stories around the dinner table every night eating barbecued chicken and corn on the cob and watermelon fresh from the field was great, but listening to what God had done in John's life was better. One evening, members of an L.A. street gang joined us, and these were six of the scariest dudes I've ever seen in my life, and I've been in a few prisons, not as an inmate, but 
But these six guys, their lives have been transformed by Jesus. And listening to their testimonies around the campfire that night, I wept. John and his wife Vera May have made a difference in the world for the glory of God. And it wasn't easy because here's how John got his start. His mother died of malnutrition when John was seven months old. His father abandoned the family. He was raised by an extended family who worked as sharecroppers, very poor. His older brother, who had just returned from serving in World War II, was shot to death by police in some minor altercation. John himself served in Okinawa during the Korean War. And it wasn't until he was 27 years old and already married that John heard the gospel and received Jesus. And it changed the direction of his life. Here's what he said about it. In that Sunday school, I finally met Jesus. And almost immediately, God began to do something radical in my heart. He began to challenge my prejudices and my hatred toward others. I would learned to hate the white people in Mississippi. And if I would not met Jesus, I would have died carrying that heavy burden of hate to my grave. But he began to strip it away, layer by layer. Five years later, John founded the Voice of Calvary Bible Institute. In addition to teaching Bible and theology, he applied the gospel to issues of racism and poverty. And then in 1970, he led a boycott against white-owned stores there in his town in Mississippi because they were refusing to hire black employees. During that protest, that boycott, John was arrested and tortured by white police officers while in custody. They battered his head with clubs, and then they ordered him to mop up his own blood from the floor. They tormented him by shoving a bent fork up his nostrils and down his throat. John lost consciousness, and when he awoke, he realized, he said, that although he was their captive, they themselves were captive to something that had completely taken them over. In their rabid desire to control him, they had totally lost control of themselves. And John says, I could not hate them. In fact, I found myself pitying them. Within a day, the community came up with bail money. And Dr. Robert Smith drained blood from John's swollen head and then cleansed and stitched and dressed his many wounds. It took months for John to recover from those injuries. And in the course of his 91 years, he has experienced a lot of hate and threats and grief and disappointment and mistreatment. But he still blesses God. He's able to love his enemies and to pray for those who persecute him because of Jesus. And so all these years later, I can still hear John's voice in that chapel service in 1976 that in, a, in the face of a life full of extremes a life that's unfair, a life that could be cut short at any moment. He quoted the prophet Amos. Let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. Be to God. What an incredible testimony of a man who's committed to following the Lord no matter what. You know, God is a refuge and strength for us. He is our protector. He is one who loves us with an everlasting love and someone that we can run to uh, in times of need. And so as we respond in this time of invitation, I want to invite you, obviously, to sing with us. If you need to come forward and pray, you can come pray at the altar. There is opportunity to respond. Respond the Lord as he leads in your heart. Would you stand together as we sing?
you crush the enemy underneath my feet you are my sword and shield though troubles linger still whom shall i fear i know who goes before me i know who stands behind the god of angel armies is always by my side the one who reigns forever he is a friend of mine the god of angel armies is always by my side my strength is in your name for you alone can say you will deliver me yours is the victory whom shall i fear whom shall i fear i know who goes before me i know who stands behind the god of angel armies is always by my side no one who reigns forever he is a friend of mine the god of angel armies is always by my side and nothing formed against me shall stand you hold the whole is always by my side the one who reigns forever he is a friend of mine the god of angel armies is always by my side i know who goes before me i know who stands behind the god of angel armies is always by my side the always by my side. Yes. I want to remind you that uh, there will be some elders here at the front uh, willing to pray with you, for you, as uh, we, clo- we close this service today. Uh, please receive this word of benediction from Colossians chapter 3. This is my prayer for you as your pastor. This is the word of God, so it's God's word to us, to you and to me as well. Receive it. Now let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs, hymns, spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. God bless you. Go in peace. They say sometimes you win some, 
Sometimes you lose some Right now, right now I'm losing that What's up church fam? Jonathan Chang here. Ashley Ebert here. And we just wanted to let you know that we've been praying together as a church for this past month, um, really for God's direction and how we will be effective for the gospel. Uh, and not just that, but also for the direction that we will go uh, in as a church. Mm -hmm. So we want to invite you here Wednesday, November 17th at 7 p.m. And we're just going to gather together as a church family to celebrate and really highlight the amazing things that God has done, not only over the course of Together We Pray, but what he's going to do moving forward. Um, and this is not just, um, you know, just for certain groups of people. This is for the whole church family. So all the grow groups, the student ministry will be here, men, women, kids, everybody is invited to just come together and just stand in awe of what the Lord is doing in this church body. Yeah, and we really want to make sure we all remember that this isn't just a time to pray in this concentrated time. We, as followers of Jesus, as a church family at Cypress Bible Church, we want to be committed to prayer, understanding that prayer is what really drives the work of the ministry. Prayer is what allows us to see how the Spirit moves in order for us, as I said earlier, to be effective in this world. And so on November 17th, 7 p.m., we look forward to worshiping with you all here then. Have an awesome day.